What is up, Asymmetry? How are you doing? Got a good one. And an exciting announcement to make tonight uh, as we launch the podcast with David Cutchins. David's been a, a student of Mirai for a long time, has a background in extensive ecology and uh, experience in the native environment of the southeastern United States and specifically Florida. And um, we brought David on to the Mirai Live community to educate us on, on not only aspects of tropical bonsai from his experience and knowledge, but also aspects of propagation and material cultivation. How do you develop from cutting, from air layer, how do you develop material? How do you grow them in a container? How do you uh, make the right cuts? When do you do it? Why do you do it? How do you do it? And how do you ensure the best success doing it? Uh, we're going to be breaking this down over a uh, significant period of time with David on Mariah Live. And I'm just so happy because he's a barrel of knowledge, a wonderful human being, and, uh, and, and just a wealth of information, ideas, inspiration, and, and I think general true blue passionate love and respect for the native environment. Anyways, uh, sit back, relax, enjoy kicking off sort of a, a beautiful partnership that's uh, destined for greatness. Uh, David Cutchins, welcome him to the Mariah Live family. Here we go. Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, man. Plugins, computers, all the riffraff. Well, I didn't want too much interference. I didn't know if you could hear my fan because it's currently like 88 degrees in here. <laughs> so it's warm. No, I can't hear anything. You sound great. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I have yeah. to go in the garage because Poppy's down. And if I'm talking in the house, she'll never yeah. sleep. Yeah. Never. Yeah. 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 Is she a sound sleeper through the night? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she might get up at like four or five and then uh -huh. uh, just sit there and stare at you for 30 minutes and then fall back asleep. But for the most right. part, yeah, she's, she's, she sleeps pretty good. Wow. Usually till seven. Yeah. Yeah. Busy spring. We just, um, Josh sales just paid you a visit, sir. It's been a, it's been a nuts of a couple months. Like tell me, tell me about it. weekend and you know, once, once June gets here, like pine classes. And then after that, I can like relax for maybe a week and then it's hardcore propagation. <laughs> so really, yeah. Really? Spring is hard. You know, it, this is the first year without Linda when it's been kind of like normal operating. And then Patrick is usually there for the first three months for World Boneside Day. Cause our World Boneside Day is usually like huge. We don't charge anything for it. Like we have uh, demos all day and all the raffles and auction stuff goes to charity. So it's like a good turnout. But it's also the time that everything gets taken out of the greenhouse, you know, weeded, fed, trimmed, uh, everything out. In, yeah, so it's like, I don't know, 2,000 plants you have to go through in uh, two months, two and a half months to hit World Boneside Day. And then, yeah, we filmed with Josh and then now convention. So it's like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> May's nuts. It's nuts. How are you holding up? Ah, man, I love pressure. I'm a sick person. <laughs> person. You love it. You love I, the carnage. I, I don't know. Yeah, I do. I get uh, some kind of satisfaction out of managing to keep it all right up here somewhere. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, 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 I totally, I, I totally see eye to eye with you on that. There's a, there is an enjoyment to it. Yeah. I, I want to rest, but, uh, Oh man, I just sometimes I just feel so guilty if I do. I'm like, I could have done something. Yeah. So yeah, even that is yeah, 
I have to take it too far. So it, it, it is it is a double edged sword because you know at some point you got to pay the piper. Yeah, yeah. Usually it comes in the form of a cold when my body's like, all right, bro, yeah. we're we're gonna take control. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna give you a day off whether you like it or not. Oh, I was pretty sick when Josh was here, like Wednesday morning. Oh, the the sinus pain, like I I was just getting antibiotics, but like the pain, like I kind of sat at the sink washing Poppy's bottle in the morning, just having like a a mini pity party, like because oh. <laughs> I knew I needed to film all day and not look sick or you know, right. But, no one will know in the video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you guys have a good time? Josh had, I saw some of the footage today. It's, uh, you took him to some special spots. He's, uh, I, yeah, you know, uh, I learned a lot from him. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in like crafts in general or trades in general. So, yeah, I was observing what he was doing and I tried to ask him questions. So I was constantly trying to improve because I've never done video stuff. I just... I just don't look at, I don't pay attention to it being a camera. It just feels very easy to just talk. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Getting little bits of information from him and just kind of what he thought. I just, just to stay on track. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah. I would be friends with Josh without having any bonsai relation or anything. Meet him off the street. I would hang out with Josh. Yeah. Josh is pretty tough to beat. He's a pretty good dude. Yeah. Yeah. He's a pretty good dude. I would say you are uh, similar. And the two of you coming together and colliding and combining forces. Oh, we had that's some conversations. We have a, a mutual love of Tenacious D. That's a rare find. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's we, questionable we music taste. This is a couple times. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's questionable music taste on two sides. Yeah. 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 I would say I feel that way about people who love Prince, but I'm probably in the minority on that one. So I, I you know, I like, I like Prince. I, I almost anything that comes out of the eighties, I'm pretty well down with. Yeah, I dig the eighties. I dig the eighties. I feel like Prince was an anomaly. You could plug him in, in any generation and he would be yeah. his own unique standalone thing. Timeless. Yeah. And also just not my flavor. Not, not my vibe. That's good. Yeah, maybe I maybe I maybe there's something there I don't quite understand or haven't evolved enough to appreciate. But uh, so how did how did World Bonsai Day? Wait, so you're pulling out, you you kind of have it down to uh, a science in terms of how you operate the facility to where you sort of have these blocks of window where you're going to go through every single tree. Oh yeah, and I do that three to four times a year. I pick every single one of them up. I make you know. Uh, just between Dave and I make every single decision, you know, most of the ones in the strip, like on the smaller side, like we will tackle that together because there's more of them, mm-hmm. but all the ones that are on the opposite side, like the conifers and like the larger trees are just, uh, ones that are, uh, I don't know, preparing for workshops and stuff. Yeah. I'll usually sit over there alone. It usually mm-hmm. takes about a week to do one strip. Um, just depends on what it is. Sometimes if I'm doing all the junipers, Oh my gosh, that takes that takes like two weeks by itself. Yeah, I really have an issue with. I've never seen spider mites in the nursery, but when you have two months of rain of you know nonstop, that is the only time you have issues is when the foliage stays too wet. So I keep yeah. it. I keep it thin enough, but that takes a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, a yeah. Time. And what happens uh, in Florida with junipers? You get phomopsis on them, or what? What? What ends up coming about? Man, it's very rare that I ever have any sort of issue. Usually, 
the foliage will just turn kind of a gray if it stays like uh, real wet. Uh, and it literally just uh, more or less just kind of rots, mm-hmm. you know, it, it will, it won't make the tree die back or anything. It just dies in parts. Um, I don't know exactly. I, I don't know if I'd call it a fungus or anything. It only happens like basically when they're drowning, they can't ever yeah. down. So uh, I think it's just a reaction of rot. The roots are always fine. It's just the foliage stays way too wet. What, what soil mix do you use? when you're growing trees like that in that kind of uh, environment? It's a high peat content with um, um, crushed pine bark and stuff. So it drains well, but it also, uh, it doesn't say like so saturated that it, um, it, it takes a long time for that to break down. Like it takes a long time. We'll pull trees out, you know, five or six years later, that still drain very well all through the pot. Like, mm. uh, but uh, yeah, it's mainly just peat, some sand, organic sand and, um, um, crushed pine bark. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And then do you use that instead of Akadama in your bonsai pots too? No, no, that's just for growing medium. Totally growing medium. Grow, yeah. Fully organic growing medium. That's it. Now the actual bonsai pots. Yeah. Dave, uh, he explained that, uh, a little bit in the video that Josh recorded, but, uh, we're the only ones that use it. It's not a mined substance. It's literally the tailings of uh, shales and different kinds of clays and things like that, that, uh, basically combusted into fire and it hardened, uh, almost like a fired, basically a fired stone. Uh, and it's, uh, basically busted up and that's what we use as a soil. Uh, but it, you know, we can actually grow our maples with leaves the size of dimes with no Akadama whatsoever. Just Mm. in that mix of a three to one, with a very small amount of pine bark and Dave used to get a lot of shit for it because of the whole pine bark part of it. And it's not lava and stuff, but then people that kind of dissed it when he started it, like about 10 years ago are now like, Oh, my pines are growing amazing in this soil. You know, Hmm. it's not going to reduce the needles on it, say a pine as small as Akadama because of the bifurcation and everything. But uh, as far as regenerating pines, Oh, whole collections of trees at this point I've basically saved uh, by using that because it aerates the soil enough to just uh, talking like four buds to a giant pine and it just almost regenerates the whole tree and then move it to Akadama or something. But Dave came up with it all on his own as an alternative to lava. Uh, wow. And it, yeah, uh, people that used to criticize it now, it's the only thing that they use. Ah, uh, Excellent. Excellent. That's so interesting. I wanted to ask you that just in terms of like growing in that environment and uh, and the success that you have had. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm really looking forward to just seeing uh, the breakdown of propagation because I know that's one of your that's one of the areas that you work very hard to have proficiency you always, in. You can always go more in depth, but I really tried to get people to understand. It's like you know every most air layers and things like that fail is because they're never like pre-planned. Usually you get to a point where you're styling a tree and it's like, I don't like that anymore, but that could make a great air layer. So then you do it when that's convenient for you and not maybe the seasonal time based on temperature that's going to make it successful. So most of them fail just because they're spurred at the moment, you know, with no consideration of nighttime temperatures. That's usually what does it. For that and tropicals almost identical. like identically, whatever. I made that word up the same. 
Ide- yeah, identically. Right. I feel like that's a, I feel like that's a universal word. Tom Petty's here too. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I love Tom Petty. Tom Petty. Yeah, good yeah. stuff. Good stuff. So did you go uh I'm I'm gonna see it all, as is everybody else, but did you go out uh, and about with Josh, I, I saw an oak yeah. tree where a branch had, I think, either touched the ground and self-layered or somehow fallen off and rooted, which seemed impossible for the size, but I don't know. Oh, no. Yeah, that uh, that's the Fairchild Oak. Yeah, I was I was with them uh, for everything except for the like down south in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, all the oaks, uh, there was a huge magnolia that we did. And then um, I think he got... The Edison ficus at uh, that's the third largest ficus in the world, um, and Edison, Thomas Edison planted it when it was like four feet tall. So um, he where's I think that he at? That. Uh, that's like uh, Fort Myers, Sarasota, kind of. It's like, like the Ringley Museum uh, estate because the Ringley brothers, like circus, they collected tons of art, and the the property with Edison is all kind of there together. Unbelievable! Yeah. Unbelievable! unbelievable it's a dope ficus it is it is pretty incredible do you get do you get hyped on on uh, and we've talked about it before but do you get excited when you see tropicals like that ficus in the greater environment does that inspire you to work on tropicals as as bonsai subjects uh so the forest or the the florida naturalist in me at first is kind of (laughs) like you know Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I can appreciate it for what it is. I mean, most of them are considered naturalized species, uh, at mm-hmm. this point where they're not native to Florida, but they've been here so long that, uh, you, you almost can't have Florida without them. So mm-hmm. in that regard, I see them as far as reference and yeah, I get excited about it. I'm always, I'm pretty picky when it comes to tropicals, you know, it is definitely at least half of what we do but I'm pretty picky on the ones that I like and the ones that I work on the most. Um, but, uh, yeah, there are a lot, there's non-tropical or, uh, non-ficus like Kapok tree. If people Google that, it is a ridiculous tree. Uh, I think it's in Palm beach County, but, uh, seeing those things, it's hard to not like tropicals. Right. Right. Especially yeah. You see them in huge, like a huge reference. Well, and not only that, but you're empowered to do it well. Like you're empowered to cultivate tropicals on the same level as a lot of the the temperate species that you're working with. What is that, bud? What's up, T Bunny? Hi. David David says here. David says what's going on. He's on my computer screen right now. Hi. All right, little man, home from school. Yes. Yes, you can cultivate tropicals well. And that and you're lucky. That's the whole point. We're right on the line of uh, temperate and and tropical, where we can pretty much do anything. We're we're basically eight and nine. This is why I moved to Oregon. It's because it's California. California was not going to facilitate uh, a tremendous amount of spruce, hemlock, larch, fir. Yeah, it's gonna be challenging. So I moved to Oregon to be able to cultivate alpine as well as coastal. I, I I get it, man. You're on the boundary, temperate and tropical. Yes. Yeah, it gives you, you know, the the only negative part of it to it is it really adds to people's confusion as far mm-hmm. as like what they can do in Florida. I I have to correct people all the time, like just that visit the nursery. They're like, oh, it's Florida. You can do anything, and it's like, 
no, no matter where you are, that's not true. Yeah, <laughs> but you you can get as close as you want right here, but more north or more south, it's definitely it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what they would call that? They they would call that bonsai utopia. Well, if you could cultivate everything the really tropicals well, still are in the greenhouse at least four to five months a year here. No um, kidding. Well, yeah, because I mean, we'll get the teens as far as temperature 20 degrees mm. somewhere in that range that's pretty common every year but sometimes yeah you'll be 10 12 you know uh so yeah they're in the greenhouse at least mid-november to uh first of april just about every okay. year wow wow but especially and uh and then as far as summertime temperatures and behavior of tropicals, where are you at? Do you, where you're at, do you get um, the same productivity? Do you have enough heat to drive the same productivity? I mean, obviously you're not uh, in Miami or Southern Florida where, where it is truly like true blue tropical. We get just as hot as Key West. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is, is the cooler nights. Gotcha. Uh, you know, there's a lot more shade cover here. So the ground doesn't warm up to the temperature that it would down there, but the ambient temperature will be about the same and so will the humidity, if not if not worse humidity because of the more freshwater bodies around here. So yeah. Wow. Be, we get colder than uh you know southern Georgia, Alabama or consistent with, uh, but then we will stay as hot as the keys. Uh and that's that's pretty much the central Florida ridge uh along the St. John's River, where you know, almost Orlando, but uh more or less right around here, Gainesville, it will get pretty cold or pretty hot. And with those colder nights, how does that impact tropical behavior? Uh, it basically ceases them from growing. They just worry about <laughs> poor metabolic function uh, where they just, uh, you know, they're, they're green. They look very healthy. They're, they're still transpiring, but they're really not putting on new growth. So that's why, like, uh, when it comes to working on them, we really don't touch them until it's 60, 65 or more. Uh, because if it's that warm at nighttime, then you know the days are going to be more 70s, 80s, 90s. So you can really get away with anything. It's that nighttime temperature that can be more or less fatal to them uh, if they're worked too heavy too early. Yeah. that's This is where uh, even outdoor cultivation of tropicals in the middle of summer in the Pacific Northwest, almost impossible. Almost impossible. Because you're talking 65 degree uh, nighttime temps. I mean, we get that periodically in the summertime, you know, it's like, it doesn't stay that warm in the summertime at night. So if that's, if that's sort of your cusp for really highly productive, and when you think about, and you and I talked about it when you were, uh, when you were here last, you know, that, uh, or when we were together last, that tropical is, is basically, it's a broadleaf, right? It's a broadleaf that, that metabolically functions at warmer temperatures more efficiently. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it is so interesting to recognize that having those temperatures driving that metabolic activity, you can just get so many more phases of growth in a singular season, so many more pushes, so much. And that's where I find it to be really, really inspiring. Like seeing Jim Smith's tropical bonsai when I was uh, first figuring out what the heck was going on in North America as like a 12 year old, still those images of his Banyan style ficus are in my head. Yeah. Yep. And I, yeah, and, I uh, and I'm jealous, and I'm jealous of you, David. It, well, you know, like the buttonwoods, uh, they can flower in the greenhouse all through winter. So even when I uh, like at the greenhouse of the nursery, it basically stays because it's a huge greenhouse. So 
it basically stays warm enough for them to do well. Mine is basically sitting in an open acre that I can easily push it to 100, 110 degrees and the buttonwoods are flowering and like full glory and seeding. Uh, you know, I can repot them when it's 20 degrees right outside the plastic because it's so damn hot in there. So you can do a How lot do you keep with it. keep so it so hot? Uh, well, just where it's sitting in the sun, it just, it warms up that fast. And if I keep it closed and only ventilate it when it's, uh, it hits a certain, um, like it, basically it's an eight foot high ceiling. So it's six feet. If six feet gets up to say 95, hundred degrees, then it will kick on the exhaust through a thermostat. Um, but above that, it could be 110, 120 degrees at the crest. So it's still warm enough in there, but cool enough not to cook the roots. So mm-hmm. foliage will grow to the ceiling and try to spread out. Um, uh, and they'll, they'll do that all through winter. If, if they're warm enough, it's just like a, you know, I say it in the, the, the videos a lot is it's really just a parameter, you know, it's when are you going to do propagation for root growth and everything? You're going to do that when it's consistently above 60, 65 degrees. That is safe. You're in the 70 degree range. If you fail at it, it is directly your fault because it's not the conditions. Nighttime temps, nighttime temps, right? Yeah. So, you know, same thing with tropicals as far as repotting and getting the branch growth that you want. If your nighttime temperatures are that, then you're going to do very well during the day and you're going to maximize it, especially if it's getting full sun. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's on a, a warm environment, you know, like an indoor thing with the right spectrum of lights. Yeah. You can produce that just the same, mm-hmm. you know, that tropical, uh, I think I said it in the, one of the videos, but, uh, Juan's first year in Florida, uh, he got a bogey. I think it was growing in a basement in Indiana for seven years. It was dug out of somebody's front yard. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. I'm, I'm sorry for, for forgetting, but it won best tropical at the Florida state convention. And it was yeah. the basement for seven years. I mean, what you can do with them, that is what makes them nice compared to something that's cold hardy that you can't do that all year long. If you, cause you can't give it the conditions to do that or it, it basically perishes as a cold weather species. Yeah. So that's the benefit. What, what, what are the parameters then if you're waiting for those nighttime temps to be doing, you said branch work and repotting, is there like a, a wide range of timing to be repotting tropicals? Can you do that the entire summer? Do you have the, that, that breadth of time? You could, uh, I still usually won't do anything hardcore, like in the peak heat, which for us would be like July and August when, uh, almost every other word out of my mouth is an expletive because it's <laughs> so hot and the mosquitoes are, uh, they're thick. <laughs> they're, they're thick. So, so you try to do it before July? Yeah. Usually, uh, uh, usually first of April we'll hit it hardcore and that'll run until first of July. And then, you know, maybe some work, uh, but the trees are chilling out too, because it's, it's way hot for them. Also, they can't mm-hmm. push nonstop all year long they still almost have a summer dormancy in the sense that they will slow down um because their their cuticles are in set they're not transpiring as fast they're they're slower um so yeah you can hit it again september and basically run that to mid-october kind of get a second little um bit of action with them further and- south you can get away with a little more uh people do well with a shade cloth the further south you go, the more UV pruning you're susceptible to where the sun will actually just kill the bud growing out. 
what if you what if you come what if you come to uh you know a northern state where you can still cultivate tropicals but you're looking at prime time to repot is is it still the same would you say it's or is it is it still looking for that same nighttime temperature reference? Well, uh, if they were, you know, if they may not have, you know, like you're saying where you are, you you might get that in the warmest time of the year. Then that would be where if I were seriously going to do tropicals, I would invest in a system to, to keep those warmer temperatures, something indoor, and then maybe take them outside when it's appropriate. But I would have to use some sort of indoor facility, pop-up mm-hmm. greenhouse, something. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it's almost, it's, it's kind of like bringing a spruce or something here and keeping it in the freezer for six months. I mean, come on, like, why are you like, you're just doing it for a fantasy at that point. It's ne- it's yeah. never going to do well if you can't give it those conditions more often. Yeah. How do, how do you keep the greenhouse warm in the nighttime then when you don't have the sun in the wintertime? You got you know, 12, 15 degrees outside and you're trying to heat that big thing at a temperature that, that, that initiates flower and you keep them growing over the winter. I don't know if you're trying to do that or if you're just saying you can do that. I'm just trying to follow. How do you keep it warm at night? Uh, so mine, I keep, uh, um, two, um, oil furnaces. Um, and then the one at the nursery, that's a hundred feet. Um, that one is, um, uh, propane furnaces. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you're heating them aggressively. Oh yeah. I, you know, for, for a 20, you know, my, one of my, uh, the one that the Buttonwoods is in, that's like a 20 by, uh, 16 and I'll use two oil furnaces in there just to, it's warm in there at night. You could sleep comfortably in there at nighttime, even if it's like, (laughs) you know, 20 degrees outside, you won't die of hypothermia. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. 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 Ah, yeah. Buttonwoods zone envy. Really, really zone envy. And yeah. and how much, how many, because you were saying there was, uh, what was the species of tree that you cited? Capoca, uh, something oh, down. Capoc tree. Capoc tree. Is this yeah. a tree commonly utilized in Bonesland, Florida or anywhere else in the tropical regions? I've never seen it. I'm not familiar with it ever being used in bonsai. Um, it's just, it's one of those trees that you look at. I mean, it's like one of the largest trees in Florida but it is a non-native tree. Um, I can text you a picture of it. It is pretty damn impressive, uh, but it's mainly the root structure that comes out. It literally looks like ribbons that are slow. That's similar to something you would see in say uh, Vietnam, Cambodia or something like it's pretty awesome. Is it, and it's not a ficus, it's a Kapok tree. Right. I don't, I don't think it has any relation to a ficus. I'd have to double check, but uh I've never been able to see it in person myself, um, but there's a lot of people that have been filming it more recently on kind of their own Instagram channels that primarily do bonsai. Uh-huh. So I'm just seeing it a lot more. And then when Josh was coming, I was like, holy shit, you got to get that tree, man. <laughs> wow. In- Did he go get it? I'm not hundred percent sure. I'm not, uh, <sighs> it was on the reference point, but that probably would have been the farthest one for him. Uh-huh. Um, but that just means, you know, we'll capture the button woods and stuff and that next time. Yes. So more, yes. more South Florida. Nice. South, nice. The tip of Florida anyway. Right. Well, so I, I mean, I guess inquiring about that is to say, are there a lot of species in Florida that you feel still lend themselves to bonsai that have not been discovered or are not utilized yet, yet to be utilized? Um, 
well, I don't know. I think, I think a lot of things, uh, I, okay. I won't say who, who gave me this reference one time, but I'm sure you've heard like the Naka stronghold, this mm-hmm. concept of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, some, maybe some art in California, no matter the age and time is kind of in that, um, style, that memory of John Naka, the way he did it in the seventies and the eighties, it's still very much like that in Florida. So I don't think there's a lot of natural references to what is seen in Florida. Um, kind of what I take from that is the tropicals that we, I do. I try to grow them in a manner that they would grow. You know, if they have thorns, I'm not going to cut them off. You know, um, if, if they have natural inverted taper, that's very specific to them. I try to leave it. So that's the best way that I can bring a natural aspect to the tropicals. But most of it is tailored more toward a particular aesthetic of neo-traditional style bonsai. That's most of most tropicals are tailored to that in the United States. What about species in terms of species that haven't been utilized as bonsai, but exist in the Florida landscape natively? Uh, If they're tropical, there's not very many. Most of Uh them have been more or less snatched up. Cause there's very few that would be, there's only one uh, natural occurring ficus here. Um, uh, and it's more of a strangler fig. So it's not, it's a little less used, probably hardly used. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, there's not a great deal. A lot of people say that black olive, the Bucita espinosa is a native to Florida, but that is um, historically more native to the Caribbean, like the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where Mary Madison used to collect them until the Bahamian government found people that were collecting them illegally. She actually had a permit, but um, more well-known establishments uh, were caught collecting illegally. So the Bahamian government just shut it down. Um, So, uh, but yeah, there's not really, most of the things that are practiced here were were basically brought here with the exception of Buttonwood. That is the only iconic tropical to really look at. There's a few mimosa variety, but most of them are, not anything you'd see in a stylistic way reference to bonsai because they're they're far too you know leggy and there's not much you can do with them but yeah we don't have a lot of reference most of it is uh you know more vietnam cambodia indonesia uh yeah and what about what about puerto rico what about uh like the caribbean like you said Uh, there it's huge And it's, it's, it's very similar there too, to South Florida. It's a very neo-traditional style look, you know, where, where more modern bonsai might say like, I don't really like the triangular kind of figure of, you know, perfect symmetry and stuff like that. Um, you know, this is more of a celebration of that. Not, not, not necessarily a modern take, but it's, it's like the flavor of that, just that part of the world uh, Mm -hmm. for South Florida and the Caribbean. Uh, as far as just neo-traditional, as far as their native species, they have things like Neobuxifolia, you know, super tiny leaves, uh, little tiny flower about the size of Washington's nose on a quarter, but it's still tight. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, they're, they have a lot of native species that they can work with that maybe uh, wouldn't naturally occur in Florida, but are heavily used in Florida right. in actual tropic regions. Do people bring in those like, is there any sort of field growing of tropical bonsai happening in Florida? Uh, I wouldn't say field growing uh, because there's always an issue with just high leaching soils or nematodes where you really have to pump up the soil with something to be able to grow there. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
yeah, we tend to be more acidic unless you're on limestone. It's a lot more alkaline. Um, but uh, there are, you know, uh, Weigerts does field grow in his space um, to grow very large trees. Uh, but most of the people north of there, except for maybe uh, Robert Pender, who's a Florida OG grower, uh, Dragon Tree, uh, I don't know very many people that actually field grow. Most of them are container grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of ours are container grow. Um, yeah, literally everything except for maples. We would field grow a lot of maple or they would plant them. I don't, I wouldn't call it a field grow, but, uh, we used to produce a heavy amount of maples and they would come down from the upper North, uh, Northeast, buy them and take them back up there. Cause we could do them twice as fast. Yeah. And that's Japanese maples, trident maples. Um, there's especially red maples, red maples are popular. We didn't do a lot of those before, but those are becoming more popular. Okay. So many things that I want to ask you about now. Uh, <laughs> we need to circle, we need to circle back to red maple. Uh, but I was curious about what you just said of nematodes. First and foremost, you were talking about alkaline versus tropical or, or uh, acidic alkaline versus acidic tropicals in general, varying degree of pH acidity or alkaline preferences, or is there kind of a, a, a consistency there to a degree? Closer to neutral, they really don't like acidic fertilizers. Uh, they don't, you know, if it like it's an organic-based soil as far as growing, they don't mind a higher acidity there. But as far as if it's in a bonsai soil and you apply like an acidic fertilizer, they definitely don't enjoy that. Um, hmm. As far as most of the groundwater is um, more alkaline in nature. Um, so the uh, like ours, it's not filtered at all straight out of the spring. Um so the trees, yeah, it's it's basically neutral uh-huh. um, or more alkaline in nature. So they do very well. They just it's more acidic fertilizers they don't like when it comes to that. That's interesting. That's good to know. And that, and the, and you find that to be pretty u- uniform across the across the board. Yeah, it, you know, if you're talking subtropicals, it may change a little bit, um, especially if you're talking uh, maybe something that's basal dominant, where it puts out a lot of very close surface roots. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's pretty much across the board that way. Would you say bald cypress tend to gravitate towards neutral or slightly alkaline as well? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, okay. This is, uh, this will go into the whole pond and the cypress. Yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's go ahead and do this. We we can come back to red maples. Yeah, this is, well, they're, they're very similar in that too. I'll, I'll, I'll say in a tidbit that, you know, you can't take a red maple that naturally grows in Delaware and bring it to Florida and vice versa because their specific DNA, you know, if they naturally occur here in a very acidic soil and you go somewhere else, they usually won't grow the same. Um, they usually won't survive because they're just, they're almost less plundered. Most of the ones you get are collected from seeds. So that, that coating is there and they don't like to be moved, even though they're the same variety and species. Uh, they don't like to transfer States. Um, but anyway, um, this is rubrum. We're talking Acer rubrum. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and so, so Acer rubrum naturally occurs in the Southeastern United States. Oh, heavily, almost everywhere. Yeah. Okay. And what about how far North does rubrum as far Stand, as you know, know, they can go all the way up to Delaware. Okay. And, and inside of that. Yeah. Sorry. And I, yeah, I've seen those. Uh, I saw one at Hagedorn's once and I was shocked. I had no idea I would see one there. 
and and of those and you're talking in the in the landscape environment or your or, or the native environment or the containerized environment of bonsai uh, practitioners from here to delaware definitely in the native environment i don't remember how far west i know they'll go most of the southeast uh swampy states all the way to texas i don't know if they would naturally go uh the other way but i do believe they i think they're natural where you are i'm not 100 percent sure interesting yeah, I'll have I to have look to into check. that. I've seen them there as bonsai, and I know they do well there, but I'm not sure if they're natural there. Yeah. And do they grow at least the Florida, because you're obviously going to have species diversity across a, a span of geography that far. The ones that grow in Florida and the southeastern United States, do they grow in acidic conditions? Are they a swamp plant? Do they like alkaline? What's the deal with, with rubrum? Every, every single soil type. I have seen them in every single soil type. I've seen uh-huh. them closer to Lake Placid where Mary is, where it's basically just beach sand. Uh, I've seen them in like a, uh, a very wet hammock growing among um, uh, cypress. I've seen them growing in water um, that put out uh, uh, like looping style roots, almost like they're trying to create their own knees, like right there alongside a cypress in the water. So I've literally seen them in everything growing out of um, more clay type soils. Uh, further north in Florida, I, I've seen them in everything in almost every part of Florida except the very extreme tip, maybe Okeechobee down. So, as a bonsai, in the from the concept of utilizing them as bonsai, fairly adaptable, fair, fairly uh, vigorous, would you say red maple yeah, is? Not, and you're not going to get tiny internodes like that's just some things you can't control. Uh, uh-huh. So you're not going to get uh, a huge amount of spacing there or I'm sorry, a small amount of spacing there. And they seem to do the best here. Um, Paul Cottage, uh, Bayota Potts, that passed away a few years ago. Um, everybody knew him as a ceramicist, but when he passed away, that guy was like a closet bonsai genius. Like he was growing, uh, you know, Seth has been sending some, me some pictures of uh, Rubens in Japan. And, you know, the, the, the Rubens that Paul was going in Jacksonville in sand, Turfus and crushed pine bark rival any any rubrum in in the United States and in Japan, like they're nuts. Uh, he had four that were very well developed. Um, I ended up with uh, two of them. Um, I literally uh, traded a lot to get them uh, because I liked Paul. He taught me everything that I knew about ceramics, and uh, so I, I tried to get the trees that of his that I just. A lot of the trees that went to auction, people have already killed them. They killed them within six months. So, yeah, I was willing to, I'd give up a finger to get those trees. <laughs> so, but those yes. rubrums are, they're ridiculous. They're, I, I did post one to uh, the Instagram account, maybe Facebook, I don't know. But, uh, and they were grown primarily in turfish, crushed pine bark, and expanded sand, like a large particle of sand. Um, and they are ridiculously refined. Most of them he grew from a seed on a rock. Uh, so most I saw them, I saw yours. I saw at least the one you posted, and I was like, "Ooh, yeah, interesting." They're all hugging limestone. So he has it totally Florida, and he made this the containers before he passed. So the whole thing is Paul uh, top to finish, and all that. Yeah, that's in our soil. There's absolutely no akadama in that whatsoever. Mm. Um, there's almost no organic material either. It's only one part of the the whole thing and the roots are super refined with no thick tap roots and yeah the inner notes are about as small as i've ever seen for a red maple huh that's and 
And can you oh. partially def- partially defoliate and do any of those techniques? Yep, can do that. Yep. I don't, uh, you know, same as most, you don't feed until they harden off. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, you don't have to, you can't really get the very tiny leaves with them. There is one guy, I haven't met him yet because I just learned about him in one of my students in the deciduous class, but he started with Paul at the same time, but he's kind of doesn't either he doesn't like clubs or i don't remember what his reason for being out of it was but uh he showed me some pictures of some florida maples and uh, acer rubrums um that literally uh he's reduced the leaves about as small as i've ever seen on them mine i would say are about 25 percent larger than his but i gotta meet this guy i don't i've never heard of him he's just like like paul was kind of a closet artist nobody knows what he's doing <laughs> You know, but he's he's figured something out. And I don't think the turfus and everything is necessarily causing them stress to make them, you know, reduce. I think it's it's literally the closest thing to the natural environment that they would grow here in Florida. You know, it's a high leaching soil. It has to work hard to get water. So it kind of it's it's acidic in nature. So it works pretty damn well for them. Mm-hmm. Most of the soil hill here is better with boron, a higher boron capacity. So turfus kind of fills in that void too. So it seems to do pretty damn well for rubrums here. I can't speak for up north, but um, yeah, I've been pretty impressed with some of the little closet bonsai folks around here that are just starting to kind of come out of the woodworks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exciting. That's always a fun part of the of this whole endeavor is fi- finding the nooks and crannies. But um, can you pinch them as they're pushing out as you would a Japanese maple in the spring, pinch out the central stem or do you let them go? No, I, I, I'll pinch them. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you pinch them, you partially defoliate one of every two leaves. Do you cut down or reduce the, the remaining leaf that you leave on the tree? Do you take the fingers off or anything? I, I usually, as far as you talking about like cutting a leaf itself, partial defoliation. Yeah. I mean, typically on yeah, Japanese I mean, maple, one of every yeah. two leaves, but then there, there is, there is that strategy. Have a, you know, aggressively feed and cut, cut the fingers off and just leave the palm of the, of the, of the maple leaf. No, I, I never do that. I, I, the only thing that I've ever really cut a leaf on is a uh, sea hibiscus. Uh, mm. Everything else, no, I don't usually do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And and what is what what did you just say about boron? Uh, you know, because turfus usually will have kind of a higher content. Like people give turfus kind of a shit show. They don't want to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, when it comes to a tree having to work a little harder to get water, that's very much similar to its natural environment. Uh, there's a lot of trees here that do very well in it. I think even, uh, Matawega grows most of his maples in it, pure turfus, mm-hmm. uh, when he's creating things, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, I've just heard a lot of, you know, it's like even with pine bark, you know, it may use a certain amount of nitrogen as it breaks down for the tree, but there are some things that are just closer to the environment. And if you're not losing drainage and percolation, then yeah, I will more or less try to tailor a soil uh, to what it, the tree more naturally needs. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, things like pines, I, oh, oh, for sure. I'm going to use Akadama, you know, the, the, you know, the cation exchange, the bifurcation, some things a hundred percent necessary others. Yeah. I, I kind of, I'd like to almost write a prescription for that tree itself or that species based on what I know about it and how it occurs where I am. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Really super, super fascinating. And, and also 
this is like when I first went to um, Andy Smith's operation in, in the, the, the uh, Black Hills of South Dakota. And it's like what he has to use as a soil to get a high success rate with the variable weather that he experiences um, in that mountain range versus, you know, the solid pumice model that Randy uses right. is entirely different. You know, it's entirely different what he found to work for him. And uh, to find non-Akadama substitutes that give you a high and, and quality result, both in the roots and in the foyer mass and stuff, is so golden because I think, as, uh, I continue to believe at some point there won't be Akadama. I don't know when. I don't have any, you know, insider perspective on Akadama mines and their productivity. I do question some of the quality of Akadama yeah. as, as it continues to be mined and distributed around the world. And it seems like there will always be, whether Akadama is readily available or not, a necessity to have other options. And that's what I'm recognizing as, as I progress with the nutrition in the containerized environment, being a diversified diet of, of supplemental nutrition for the tree, um, having, a, having a toolkit of soils that meet different needs for the development, uh, the growing environment versus the transitional versus the final refinable containerized, you know, bone size ceramic environment. There's so many tools. There's so many tools to cultivating bonsai. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of like you think of tree styles in bonsai, like how many species of tree in the world is there? Can we really say there's 12 ways to identify them? Like based on a style, like yeah. It, yeah, it's just, I don't know. The plant evolves. Why wouldn't you? You know, it just, Dave, a lot of the things that he figured out with his soil, I mean, we make it by hand, you know, it takes a half a day to make about 40 gallons, but yeah, we wash it, sift it three times, you know, it gets sterilized and then you do the same thing with the other components, but, uh, it works, it has results and yeah, it is, it is different, but, um, we don't use it necessarily identically every time, you know, it just depends on the tree, but. Yeah, if you're giving it what it needs, but then you're filling that box of, you know, getting small leaves where you want small leaves, you're getting, you know, bifurcation top to bottom, you know, then, yeah, I don't, it's hard to argue with that mm -hmm. as far as uh, applications, you know, because things are different. Florida, especially regionally, temperatures, weather, everything. Yeah, I got 14 inches of rain in a week last uh like a couple weeks ago and then it was just non-stop humidity most akadama would break down if that happened for four months so yep. Yep. yeah you, you know the way is our drains and stuff like that but still allows you to have that root reduction and the branch reduction leaf reduction yeah uh gotta try some new things you know things are exhaustible resources yep yeah uh strong all strong strong uh information i'm super excited that we got to film with you and that you're you're working with us on mariah live now i just think like there's such a it's such a chasm and this was this was really where when juan came back from japan and he had uh experience in in tropical regions and with tropical species it was like oh this is amazing and um you know it's we don't really hear from Juan anymore and that was disappointing but um but through this like 
you know, Dave with what he's done and then you you really coming along with a super dedicated and and passionate approach and wanting to continue and perpetuate this really magical place that he he created and you're finding can continue to live on and and potentially even expand. It's like um you know, it really does give rise to generational accumulation of information as well because you're learning what Dave did and you're continuing to grow and learn yourself and there's going to be a lot of value from that. I had to learn a lot through osmosis with him. You know, I always saw my job is to learn how to explain what he learned how to do naturally with his hands through trial and error. You know, I, you know, he could explain why he did it, but I always tried to look at it like, uh, you know, Linda always said, if I'm going to take over the nursery, then I need to do everything that he did, you know, to earn it. So it was like, if Dave put a lot of time into clip and grow in this, I'm going to put a lot of time in clip and grow in this. And then <laughs> if this was something, you know, I would still do my own things, but I wanted to understand what he went through and his different stages. And yeah, it, 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 if you look at photos and stuff and yeah, in the last 10 years, it's been pretty, it's sped up as far as the development of the trees, just having, you know, two more sets of eyes, you know, me going to school, going to Mirai, and then the forestry background, com- you know, just combined with his kind of dedication to it, it, it just works really well. So super fortunate. I, I have so much respect for that, this self-taught uh, or or generation of bonsai practitioners that just through sheer grit and determination figured it out. And the answers weren't there. The guidance wasn't there. And people like Dave, yeah, through trial and error, dogged determination, and also a, a real talent. Like, this is a talent. Well, he absolutely to- loves it, too. That's the thing. It's like, you know, it was it was never for necessarily anybody else. It didn't start that way. It was he really wanted to know. He wanted mm-hmm. to get it right. So he kept trying. So, But, but growing things is a talent. Uh, it's there. There's a knack. There is a uh, an intuition that can't be. You can learn it. You can learn the science of it. Some people don't have any clue about the science of it, and yet they can just do it. Yeah. And that's that. That's not discussed. People don't think about. Oh wow, that person can grow anything. There are people that when you put a living plant in their hand, whether it be an orchid, a cactus, right. uh, a temperate, or a tropical. It doesn't matter that they're going to be able to do that out of sheer intuition. And I find that to be freaking awesome. And I'm envious of it when I see it in people. There's two people here in Florida that I, I immediately was like, wow, you are straight up natural at this, like totally (laughs) shocked. And they're the most humble people and probably no one's ever heard of them. Well, maybe one of them, but uh, yeah. One's a student, and uh, the other I'm going to meet for the first time in person at the convention. But cool. big fan, big fan. Very cool. Yeah, I remember the first time. I'm trying to think of his name. He was a gentleman up in uh, Pennsylvania, and I met him at Nature's Way when I was teaching there. I want to say his name was Howard, and yeah, I feel like he had a a really phenomenal bonsai collection, and it was in an old quarry or an old mine, or there was like a a water source that ran through it and he had turned it into this just magical land uh, and had a really 
when when somebody has a knack for cultivating things, they don't have to wire their trees as much. They don't have to uh, prune and control because there's just a, a, a almost like an, an innate, innate understanding of the mechanisms that provide the kind of aesthetic results that a lot of uh, other people have to utilize technique to achieve, and and they're using the horticulture to achieve it. And their trees have a softer, more organic. And I feel like Ann Spencer in in Portland, Oregon, who's one of the definitely one of the OGs of self propagated, grown, impeccable records kept. And when before she passed away, you know, she opened the door to the BSOP members, the people that she had worked with, her friends, her uh, you know, bonsai family to take on her her pieces to perpetuate them because who better uh, as well as to perpetuate their history but but they have that same vibe and that kind of yeah that it's it's not teachable that's not teachable it's it's like mary you know what made a third grader be like pull over dad i need to get out and what is that tree over there like what third grader does that you know yeah yeah i talked to mary the other day it was so good to talk to her so she good has to talk that to her. Same natural drive that, yeah, she's listening to the material in front of her. Yeah, but Mary almost has like that lack of boundaries, like lack of limitation. You know, Randy Knight has this. Yeah, there's nothing too complex. If if Mary was down in the Bahamas collecting and working with the Bohemian, is that how you say it? Bohemian. Bohemian, yeah. Bah- Bohemian government. Uh, <laughs> That is exactly the spirit that's like, yeah. not everybody has that. You just, right. you just, the unique skill sets, the, your combination of, of knowledge from forestry, from uh, the time that you spent in, in the diversity of landscapes in Florida and, uh, and all of the artistry and design that you just sort of intuitively embody and have. And suddenly, voila, you've got David Cutchins, the bonsai professional. It's just like, it's badass. And and Randy really doesn't have that limitation. But that was one thing that struck me about Mary from the beginning is there wasn't a, uh, oh, that's going to be hard. Oh, that's too far. Oh, how do we make that happen? She was just like, oh, let's go. And it was, and it, and it was in, freaking inspiring, you know? I say that there's, there's a perfect line for that. And that's simply not being encumbered by the impossible. Mm-hmm. It is, it is, it's never a thought, you know, you really don't know that you can't do it until you just do it. Kind of like mm-hmm. you think of serendipity. You just have to put yourself there. You yep. know, that's the only way shit happens. Yeah. 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 Uh, Laura Buchan that we did the podcast with, she's a, a wood, wood sculptor. I, w- I wouldn't call her a wood worker. She's a, she's a true blue sculptor. I have a, her, a few of her pieces at Mirai, but she podcasted with us and she said, whether you want to or you not or or you don't, uh, just showing up is your job as an artist. Just showing up. Just show up. Maybe you clean the workshop. Maybe you chip away at a project. She said, more often than not, though, if you show up and you are passionate about what you do, you will intuitively start working. Yeah. And th- that is something that I've really, since I, I spoke with her, I, I've taken on with intention, whether I want to or not. And this past repotting season for me was a perfect example of it whether i want to or not just show up and trees were still getting repotted whether i felt like it or not and that's just like a statement of the way it is yeah it it is you know i think you know what what happens when dave actually is is uh you know retired it's like 
you know, I think of just doing it now. It's like, I know I can handle it, but it's like, man, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Showing you- up, it's never going to move unless you show up. Yeah. That's yeah. that whole thing where everybody's like, oh, man, it must be amazing to have a nursery. I can't wait to quit my job. That would be great. Just put your shoes on and you're there. It's like, yes. you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not going to yeah. make <laughs> Sorry, everybody. But, yeah, that's you, you have to uh, you're going to work even harder, yeah. even harder yeah. than you the ever ro- worked before. The romance of it the romance of it can rub off pretty quickly. This is harder than fighting fire and running from my life. <laughs> like This is harder, you know, cause it's like, it, it's not the work. You love the work. It's the environmental factors that prey on you, hurricanes and, and insects. And I mean, I get stung yeah. by wasps almost every week. Like, yeah. I mean, it just, it's all those things. So the love is always there, but it's, it's all those other things that we don't think about that's like, this is, can be a challenge. This is a perishable commodity, you know? Yeah. I was texting with Peter Warren. This is, <laughs> this is a while back. I was texting with him. You know, how you doing, man? It's been a while. And he said uh, somewhere in that conversation, he was just like, I just wish bonsai was just a little easier. Yeah. Just a little easier. And I totally, that feeling, uh, because the way you put it, being preyed on by environmental factors is such a perfect way to describe, you know, pests and disease and uh, heat and cold and drought and and prolonged rain and wind and lightning and fire and hurricanes. Yeah, it's just like wow, wow, lot a lot of obstacles. Uh, and and how do you day in day out decide that you're going to continue to put up with this unpredictable you can't control it no matter how proactive you are you can't you can't stop everything it's impossible that's an easy answer i just want to see what the tree's going to do tomorrow you know <laughs> right. i literally do you know when there's a hurricane and you have to bust those damn things downhill to storm in buildings and then Maybe it doesn't come by you and you just have to bust them all back like uphill <laughs> pushing it. I'm not pulling this with a truck or anything. I'm pulling and pushing all those damn trees. <laughs> Mad <know>? power. <laughs> and what if I do that four times a year? Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, but, uh, you know, when all that stuff settles and everything, you know, maybe you lose a tree like in the ground in the garden. But when the trees hit their benches again, it's like, all right. We pressed what we did. That's what we did. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Troy and I live by the motto that uh, if you think it, do it. Um, because you'll always regret it if the tree suffers for something that you knew that you should have done and you didn't. And uh, when it, 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 the other motto is if in doubt, err on the side of caution. And that is a very physical, physically demanding mantra to live by in bonsai but to put forth the effort to move a tree in and say the snow doesn't come the cold doesn't come the hurricane doesn't come right the tree is in good shape you put it back out and you're physically a little bit more tired but to forego that slight dis- physical discomfort and then that tree is gone forever gone yeah. there's just no there's no there's no way that that balances out to not take the action that's in the best interest of the tree every time. You can't apologize. The tree's gone. 
Like nope. nothing, nothing. It's done. Yeah. And it's a and it's a singular, unique living being that does not exist anymore, and you cannot recreate. And uh, and if that living being is, yeah, you know, fifty years old, it's been on Earth longer than me. For me, <laughs> an extra ten minutes to move that tree. Well, when you have to extrapolate that over, you're talking about two thousand plants. Okay. That's uh, that's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. But what about the time and effort and energy that were put into that? You can't ever lose sight of that. And plus, to go out and get them all again, yeah, it it's cost prohibited. Yeah, cost prohibited, effort okay. prohibited. Absolutely nowhere to get it. It becomes a, and I think that's the biggest thing as as I as I continue to watch you evolve and and your role in 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 the the garden evolve is that this time and effort and energy that's gone into it it's it's not something that you can to think about starting it again the lift to start it again that's a lifetime's body of work that for dave and then you're adding on to it what's going to become your lifetime's body of work now if one of those pieces for failure or negligence one of those pieces dies that's two generational bodies of work that have gone into that singular piece and perpetuating this this is what is so fascinating about the pieces that have survived uh, for significant and prolonged periods of time in the containerized environment when you extrapolate down that that down to every day in that tree's life a majority of the moments where somebody could invest the effort and maybe the storm didn't come or forego the effort and the storm comes and knocks it out the majority of the time for that specific tree people made the decision to err on the side of the tree's best best interests you know that is literally uh you know to put it in a nutshell that is the only force or pressure i've ever felt on me is um not not that dave has put that on me but the idea that what if in 10 years or something something happens to that tree while I am the sole steward of that thing's existence. It's like, mm-hmm. what, ha- you know, it's like the amount of guilt or, you know, whatever it would be that would just kind of, that is the only thing that I, I lose sleep over at night is how to keep them aging gracefully without any of those other factors, just, you know, ruining it. That's the only yeah. way I feel. That's the only pressure on my chest, you know, yeah. and it's, it's just because I've looked at the trees for 10 years and I've worked on them and, you know, knowing that some of them, he grew from a cutting, you know, a matter of like three leaves, four leaves. Uh, yeah, that's, um, that's the way you would feel by collecting a incredibly old Yamadori. You know, it's, it's not the exact same, but the weight of loss in that is, uh, it's Delta Burke swimming in a Guinness thick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you can't carry that pressure around in bonsai constantly. Oh, no, no, no. I just, you know, that's just the thing. You know, it's mainly hurricanes that give me that feeling. It's like, oh, you know, what kind of building can I erect where it's like, what what, what happens when the Category 5 comes here? I mean, that's what basically took out my parents like just a few years ago. My whole, almost everybody in my family lost their house, you know? So it's like, can I, you know, when at the end of the day, it's like, do I live and save myself or do I stay with the trees and save the, it's like, how do you make that decision? Cause it's like, which kid do you love the most? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not something you carry around every day, but there is that, 
that little bit of fear keeps you aware and keeps the trees going because you're not complacent with the reality of what, what you're uh, more or less in charge of, you know, it's, it's what, ke- you know, that's the pressure that I love, man. It's, you know, um, yeah, I didn't realize you were such a junkie for pressure. Well, you know, there's the, I just, uh, um, found out that they, I, I kind of threw BSF, uh, an invitation to, uh, test the waters. Uh, this is ties into the pressure thing and, uh, they approved it uh, or they told me they approved it yet, uh, yesterday, but yeah, next convention, uh, like it's Saturday at one, uh, a two to 300 person demo. I'm going to do four trees in four hours. I'll wow. have my four best students, one on each tree. Um, but they'll, each tree will represent a different region of Florida that way, no matter where they are in Florida, the Southeast, they can, they can bid on that tree, but the whole presence of it is a horticulture based program. That's a risky program to just do on its own. So you need the entertainment value. So yeah, four trees in four hours from four different regions. And we'll discuss the horticulture while each one of them are working out and I'll move around and design it as I'm going. Uh, I trust them a ton. Um, so yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be interesting. (laughs) When is this, this is BSF 2022. Yeah, this would be uh, convention 2022 in Orlando. God, so gangster. I respect that, David. Well, I respect it, that a lot. I, I think that know, is such a brilliant idea. I, You know, it's the only way to show the real contrast in Florida is to see these things right next to each other with their own whiteboard, uh, you know, showing this is applicable, this is applicable, and this is applicable, even though we're all in Florida, but it's different regions. And then to show it live on the tree while, you know, the students are basically wiring and cleaning it up and, you know, the design process of relating it to the environment that they come from, like, yeah, I've wrapped my head around, like, how can I do this? You know, I can collect a cypress from three different regions and you can see it next to each other and it'd be plain as day, but how do you teach it from a horticulture perspective and make it entertaining? Uh huh. Four trees in four hours. Very, very interesting. Maybe I'll fly in. I want to see that. That's a, you know, that's a, that, that is a, an approach that, that, um, almost reminds me of like, uh, the movie searching for Bobby Fisher about, uh, the chess player. And there was a video clips in that movie of him playing like 20 people at once on, in a game right. of chess, 20 chess games at once. And he's moving through the room you know, making moves on these 20 chests. It's just like, wow, the capa- the capacity, but pushing that capacity in bonsai, I find the demo to be a fascinating test oh. of capacity for a professional. That's yeah. another level though. That would be the most, uh, that's ever probably attended a single demo. Um, uh, it could be probably, you know, cause I, I said, I, I would do, I wanted a minimum of 200, but I think the room goes up to 300. Uh, and you know, most demos would be fairly expensive, but you know, for 20 or $25 a person, it's also very affordable. Um, I think he said he's going to make an exception where you don't necessarily have to register for an entire day or join BSF. So more people can attend it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I just feel, you know, I had to do forestry programs. I had to do programs as a ranger in the park service and stuff like the talking, I can only look at one person at a time. I don't care how many people in the room. I'm only going to look. <laughs> at one person at a time. So it's like, that part is easy. Uh, the crowds don't bother me or anything, but, uh, I think it's, it's an opportunity to 
you know, get the horticultural message across for the different regions of Florida without it being like more south, more north, more central, but fair. Um, but also, um, I think it's a good test for BSF to show like, hey, um, you know, maybe 90% of the market is more at a beginner hobbyist level. However, we should not neglect the 10% that want to go further. So it also allows people to be like, oh, damn, there are people that will do this and go further. So it's like, yeah, there's there's a and plus, you know, Dave climbed a ladder, you climbed a ladder, you turn around, you grab somebody, you pull them up with you. Yeah. So those four people that I chose, Abner, Alejandro, um, Mia and Ryan, Ryan, that was with me at Mirai. Yeah. Um, you know, some of them don't want to do this professionally, but that don't mean they can't be amazing anyway. Yeah. So yeah, it's a good opportunity for them. So yeah, I figured, you know, it wasn't a go big or go home thing. It was, I can do this. Uh, so, uh, this is how I'm going to contribute to BSF because people like Mary and Ed, this is how it was when they started. We had a yep. few generations there that maybe got a little aggressive, maybe made it a, you know, too much game of Thrones, <laughs> but, uh, that's not how I'm going to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. like Mary and Ed's approach of support each other and, uh, you know, just do the best you absolutely can. Yeah. So, high tide raises all ships. Yeah. It's. It's the way to go. You can't neglect that upper. You can't neglect that upper tier of practitioner either. That I think that is something that um, I think that is something that that bonsai in the Western world is starting to recognize, and that's that's really where that upper tier is 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 fostered by and supported by super high level exhibitions. I think that's where the trophy and in, uh, in Europe facilitated and supported that that upper tier. Um, and and even in the United States, I I, I think there is still a, a, a somewhat of a cumbersome understanding or expectation of how a professional can or should engage with exhibitions right. in North America. You know, like that's a and so how do you support that upper tier? You you, you really have to educate that and continue to provide ins, information, inspiration, collaboration with the talented practitioners that exist that are that are pursuing bonsai as a practice as a lifestyle as a significant aspect of their their daily existence because those that that continued progress of the upper really dedicated upper tier practitioners they do have a trickle down that's your those are your dedicated members and clubs that continue to inspire and and educate the 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 intermediate and beginning practitioners and and facilitating the opportunity for that club to raise its game and level i, I it's just such a beautiful ecosystem of self-sustainability if if we fo- focus oh. on fostering all, all all levels and all in all capacities it's good for everybody it literally is good for everybody mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's awesome well uh, awesome and kudos to you for that idea that's that's brilliant absolutely brilliant now you said something in there, BSF. Um, mm, I had something there for a moment. I ha- I had something there for a moment, and it's gone. It'll come back though. I wanted to I wanted to talk to you about Bougainvillea, and I don't know. I well, actually, I have selfish reasons. Somebody dropped off of Bougainvillea uh, and said, "Here, do you want this?" And it's a pretty badass Bougainvillea, and I said, "I do, I, I do," and. Um, 
And so I wanted to talk to you about bougainvillea from a perspective of repotting, of pruning, of handling, of fl- uh, of flowering, and the timing mechanisms that uh, would encourage us to work on bougainvillea at specific times of the year. Um, so, and so currently, it's flowering. Just to give you an idea of where it's at here in the north. So yeah. So uh, for us, uh, most of my, you know, I like bougainvilleas. I like to see them flower, uh, but uh, they're not. Um, they're not my favorite tropical. Like I have them, we propagate them and everything. So a lot of my interaction with bougainvilleas is very much from the propagation aspect, um, you know, and, you know, design aspect. But as far as I don't keep any in my personal collection, the nursery has them. Um, but as far as uh, their general characteristics, yeah, they generally like to be drought. You know, they come from drought, drought tolerant climates. So if you overwater them, you reduce the chance that they're going to flower well. You know, if they're in the ground, they're more or less in a high leaching soil. So they will flower profusely because they were not really sitting in water. So in a bonsai pot, yeah, you lose loss of percolation. Uh, at that point, it's a great time to repot, but we more or less let them fill it. Uh, and you get great flowering out of it. Um, By letting them get slightly even root bound, yeah? Oh, yeah. They, they, they definitely like that. Too much work on those, too much water. Um, another thing people like to carve them a lot. Um, when you have something that is just naturally prone to rot and you take a Dremel tool into the middle of xylem and you're expecting the cambial layer to almost do the entire amount of work itself of water and nutrient transfer. Um, you can't very well expect it to be that way in 20 years. Like you're going to design, redesign them at a faster rate. The more you have that some is great. Um, but, um, yeah, you're, you're basically expecting the top to never get wet. Otherwise it's going to continue to decay in some fashion. Um, so opening, opening them up to carving into live wood, you just basically accelerated the, the, the decay of that tree over time. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of tropical trees get carved. Um, but it's, it's kind of one of those things. It's, it's easy to observe in its natural native state, whether it be in the ground or something like that and be like, well, I don't really see that on the tree, you know, so you really can't sustain it on its own. So you can apply lime sulfur and everything. They'll still continue to rot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not an end all be all people will put wood hardener on it. A lot of time that just puts a surface layer on there. So right. it just condensates on the backside, like lacquer on a, a table outside. It just, you kind of create a problem you can't stop at that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're same thing, 60, 65 above at nighttime. They can tolerate a little colder temperatures more than say some other tropicals. But if I'm going to do a heavy amount of work on them, I'm going to stay evening temperature over 60, 65, or at least my accommodations for it. And then yeah, warmer daytime temperatures, you can pretty much go berserk. And so are you repotting bougainvillea in that similar, in that similar range, like a, if they're flowering, you repot them after they flower, while they're flowering, before they flower, you prune them after flower. Like what's the typical cadence of work? I mean, for, for us where we are, um, I, w- I would prefer to either pot them after they're, you know, a very dominant flowering cycle or catch them before the onset of flowers, you know, mm-hmm. the leaves converting into flowers. Uh, I usually wouldn't do it in the middle. And if I would, I would probably cut every single flower off to reduce the energy loss in the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't want them trying to, uh, basically pollinate while trying to grow roots at the same time. It's just, it's a stretch. It's too much of a stretch. 
That's fascinating that to hear you say that. And again, to think about tropicals as a broadleaf tree that functions with a higher rate of metabolism because of the uh, of the warmer temperatures they typically grow in. Because you really are when you have that kind of water transport and that kind of sugar starch productivity wow. that a that a that a that a broadleaf provides with that surface area for transpiration and and sugar starch production. Uh, you really get to allocate where that goes. And so to hear you saying. And I find this to be true, and I find this to be true even with Japanese maples. You really can use the leaf as a suction, as a suction device to pull in more nutrition, to pull in things that alter the behavior based on that broad leaf. And it's not a it's not a a it's not a passive action because there is there are a lot of chemical processes that are involved in transpiration and the photosynthetic process but but it definitely is is a a, a usable uh, force to move oh. resources through the tree and allocate them and to hear you talking about that with taking off the flower not diluting it between pollination and root productivity is it's just it's just interesting and reaffirming i mean i you know it's the same thing like i we never defoliate anything like you know if if something say is uh, approaching winter and it's a deciduous tree uh, and the leaves have lost all of their, their color per se. Uh, yeah, that's a safe time to remove it. It's not using it anymore. It's basically for our amusement at that point, as far as the leaf being on the tree. So, you know, when a tropical comes out of the greenhouse in spring, the leaves are usually at a point where they're going to drop off and new leaves emerge because it's basically going from that indoor climate to outdoor climate. So it's going to want to drop those leaves. Um, so that's the only time I would defoliate it as far as defoling them as a practice. Um, I mean, just because you can do it all the time, doesn't mean it's the way, you know, it's like with ficus. I covered this in the video, you know, you can defoliate, cut all the leaves off and everything, but it's not like a, it's not a cactus that doesn't have leaves where it it has like photostomatic tissue. It can do some amount of photosynthesis through its actual branches, but at the same time, it's like, okay, I can cut it back. But if you observe ficus growth, they usually their first leaf on a branch is smaller and each leaf gets bigger as it goes out. So if you pinch the stipules, then you literally save that small leaf and the leaves behind it that are small start growing branchlets. So you control the ramification that way. And by not taking every single leaf off, you didn't cause it to fully regenerate. You allocated the resources by basically controlling the oxins. Mm -hmm. So it's like, but people like to see them without leaves. So it's like, yeah. if you like that, awesome, but understand you're slowing your progression down. In some cases, like you're losing half of your growing season because the damn thing keeps having to grow leaves, mm-hmm. you know, and you want small leaves, you need root maturation. This is a, this is a top and bottom thing. And people like to, because they can, repot their tropicals all the time, constantly redesigning them. You know, they like this teacher. They like that teacher. The tree never gets to alchemate to either approach. So yeah, it's, we can have way better tropicals in the Southeast, but we're our own worst enemy in that we're so impatient, uh, which is weird because we're not impatient on a cold hardy tree with a slow season. We're impatient on a tree that grows like crazy. No, it's like, (laughs) yes. When you yes. say these things out loud, it's like, what are we doing? You know, okay, yeah. it looks amazing in a winter silhouette. Uh, it doesn't need to look like winter four times a year. 
you, you don't need to cut every single leaf off and, and then be like, man, this is just not developing as fast as it should. You right. know, like you keep, you keep slowing it down by cutting off the damn solar panels. You know, the only thing that creates energy and thickness yeah. and development, you keep chopping it off. Well, and I think too, those big actions, the big action, removal of the entire photosynthetic system uh, in, in its entirety is is a big action. And the tree yeah. has to respond with a big response or things are going to start going downhill fast. It just doesn't look as cool with one or two leaves on it, you know? It's like, yeah. that's yeah. full of energy. It's a highway there, you know? And I, I continually move farther and farther away from these massive actions. I mean, I understand first styling, you're going to cut branches off, you're going to remove a lot of foliar mass, you're going to set the structure, but you know... You know you're throwing a boulder into the into you know the mirror the mirror still pond and you're gonna watch the ripple effect for a long time. Yeah. That's okay. You're starting the bonsai process, but when you get a tree that's refined or you're trying to refine a tree or you're trying to create more predictable, dependable responses, you, you don't throw boulders into the pond anymore. You know, like it's it's small calculated moves that cause less and less ripple in the in the water and keep that surface predictably smooth, you know? You see this most in tropicals where they're constantly defoliated, but they don't fruit or flower. You know, they don't, uh, uh, the leaves don't reduce, even though they defoliate it like crazy. I mean, there are, you know, in most cases in that, they, they never reach root maturation, you know, yeah. because it's a constant change. But yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll go core metabolic function and they'll, they'll survive. But I, I made this reference in the video too. It's like saying, Oh, well, it's alive, so it's all right. Well, a, a homeless person is alive, but they're not exactly thriving over there, you know? So right. it's like, oh, my tree's alive and it didn't die, but that doesn't mean it can't be better. And just because it's a forgiving tropical doesn't mean it should keep having to fucking ask for forgiveness. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> I'm sorry for being a tropical. I'm sorry for a being a tropical. smaller through abuse crime. <laughs> you know, it's like... You can do that by hitting a tree with a lawnmower. So it's like the same thing of constantly <laughs> doing it through a tropical. You're using it through abuse, not necessary metabolic te technical application. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's got it. Yeah, that's you say funny. them out loud, it's like, what? Are we, what? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you, I think you just touched on a really practical point, and that is if you keep defoliating vascular productivity and roots are a vascular tissue trunk girth is a vascular production branch expansion is a vascular production back budding is a product of sugar starch storage and increased vascular capacity if you're always defoliating then there isn't the time you recover from defoliation, then you're defoliated again. And then you recover from defoliation. You never get to recover from defoliation. And then, oh, let's produce that vascular tissue we've been so trying to. And that root mass is the epicenter of all of the plant's immunity, response to stress, strength, etc. cetera. Uh, I, yeah, man, just an, an abused, an abused yeah. uh, genre yeah. of tree. It's, yeah, I mean, it literally... You know, they look beautiful when they're defoliated, but the, you know, and you see a lot of people that show a lot of photos of defoliation. It's like, all I'm, all I'm asking is, is, you know, when people do those things is, you know, let them know you did it because you knew the tree was a hundred percent healthy and could tolerate it. Mm -hmm. Can't just be 
the way it's an assist, you know, so some people can do it once every couple of years and they're, that, that works very well. You know, they're very, they're very patient, but it's just the rate, you know, people just see it and it's like, Oh, I need to do this for my tropicals. You know, I don't have root maturation. Like I don't feed regularly. Like I'm pretty kind of water when it's convenient, you know, and then you go in and defoliate. It's like, you know, the tree's like, yeah, the tree's having a bad time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not enjoying itself. Definitely. And you don't feel rewarded because you don't see your progress. But you're doing everything you're told, but it's like, okay, well, if you're told that in Miami, don't come to Ocala and do it, you know? So it's not, it's just, that's what makes, you know, bonsai maybe difficult in Florida is it's sometimes it's the methodology and where it's applicable, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why, you know, when I did the Mariah videos, it's like, this is a parameter for you to follow because in my own state, it's not the same everywhere you go. So I can't expect a worldwide audience to be like, oh, he said spring. Ha, okay, I'll do it in spring. You know, maybe your spring is cold as crap compared to me. Yeah. You know, this is a parameter, whether you're indoor or outdoor, that is successful for propagation. It's a parameter for successful potting and, and for, for growing branches and, and cutting back and stuff. It's, it's, it's getting away from that broad brushstroke of, because it's bonsai and that's why you did it, you know? Right. Right. Why did I do mm. it? When do I do it? I still think, I still think tropical trees should be the best trees in the world. And as far as bonsai is concerned, there's just no, if you have the kind of metabolic activity and you understand the mechanisms of the tree the tropical regions of the world should have the best bonsai in the world, hands down, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I think in North America, Florida should have the best trees in North America. They should. Well, that's that. That's that's a very that's not and that's not judgy. I'm not being judgy. I'm just think, oh no. thinking practically from a physiological behavior. You, if 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 growth, if the rate of growth gives you the capacity to move energy, and the more energy you have in the tree, the more growth and development you can achieve. Man, the tropical regions. I think you see that in Taiwan. Oh yeah, that Taiwanese bonsai. Uh, I think that you see what yeah. Robert Stevens has done, and the Indonesian bonsai community. You know, although I think it's, I don't know if there's isolated pockets. I don't have a lot of knowledge of that. But when you see their pemphis acidula, and you see some of the hibiscus, and you see those nuances to some of those tropical species that they're working on. And the, I, I mean, Taiwanese junipers, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But then it goes on and on and on to the, the deciduous models, the elms, the hackberries, uh, and again, and again, the hibiscus and ficus and, um, those species, they're just crushing it, crushing it. They do something we don't do enough of in America when it comes to tropicals. And that is what? grafting, branch grafting and root grafting. They do it so well compared to, uh, say, a deciduous tree. Uh, if you know the most amazing, whether it be a generational nursery or operation uh, in that part of the world, they heavily utilize grafting or fusion of trunks in some species to create amazing nabaris and very thick trunks with, you know, almost a broom style appearance. Like it's grafting. You know that is that is huge. It's becoming more popular here. We're starting to to teach it more in the classes as far as the weight improvement because a peg graft you can move a branch on a you know take it off of this part of the tree move it somewhere else on the tropical and it take 
that you can't get away with on other species or other varieties. So um, that is where you're going to see the tide turning in Florida because the generation of the 30 somethings right now are like, okay, okay. I see where this is going. I need to do more grafting. You know, I need to, uh, I need to concentrate on root maturation. I need to slow down the potting. You know, I need to slow down the foliation. It's, it's coming around. It's coming around. This is part of that geared toward the BSF program is like, okay, let's, let's talk seriously about this. Cause you want the best tropicals in the world or the United States, or, you know, like you're saying the most diverse, uh, there are so many easy concepts to get there, but we are very much in that um, neo-traditional phase of bonsai, where we're, we have our own flavor in this part, but we're not looking at the places where these things originate and what those artists have been doing historically. We're kind of missing that mark because we have that identity that's unique to us, but mm-hmm. that identity does involve things like core horticulture or grafting and things like that. So I think that's going to, you're going to see that explode over the next couple of years easily, Hmm. especially when Seth comes back and, you know, that kind of core group of us that have these long-term plans. Yeah, for sure. Tell, tell Seth that we tried to reach out and communicate with him and he has not responded to us. So if he wants to podcast, he needs to, he needs to make it happen because, because we're in, you you tell him. I would tell him, I would tell you, he's totally unaware of that. Uh, because well, I don't know what to tell him, man. You know, he sent me a very creative card asked, oh, telling me you wanted a podcast. You got that or not? Yeah, I got it. I got it. And then we reached out to him. We never heard from him. So Seth, okay. get your shit together, son. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Good. Yeah. He's, um, uh, I, yeah, I talked to him basically about every day, just about every day. Nice. In Japan. Nice. And he's still at Aichian. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. A lot of what you and Peter were talking about in your podcast is identical to the type of work that he's been doing, but uh-huh. he's not so much of a, he's, he's there for the, the right reason of he's there to learn and progress, or maybe other apprentices are more focused on how many likes or posts that they can make. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the thing that keeps me anchored to Seth is uh, the, the overall goal of why he's there and what he's, what he's trying to accomplish. So yeah, hearing you guys talk about it, it's like, all right, all right, you know, kudos to what's happening there. Yeah. So yeah, Aichian. Yeah, I mean, when I was at when I was at the World Bonsai Convention in Saitama, <clears throat> I don't, I can't remember if that was 2017. I feel like it was 2018, but I don't really. I, th- those years are kind of blending together. That was that was a tough string of of several years there uh, getting Mariah live off the ground. So it's all kind of blended into just pain as a general memory. But um, when we were there, Arushabhata-san, my senpai, when we were on stage and, and Juan was, Juan was doing the demonstration, but Tanaka, his master was assisting. Yeah. And Arushabhata, I believe Arushabhata-san was on stage, I believe at the same time, I think as if I'm remembering correctly and he turned and he said he said to me you got to understand Tanaka-san is is a badass like this dude is a bonsai badass and for you know Arushabhata-san doesn't say that he's kind of a cool customer when it comes to like giving kudos and props and stuff and so when he said that I was just like oh interesting I've never heard beyond him speaking of Mr. Kimura, who's both of our master, you know, I mean, he's my senpai, I'm his kohai, Mr. Kimura is our master. 
I, I hadn't really heard him say that about too many people. And, and it just it just painted Tanaka and Aichi in, in a really different light. And I think the more that there are foreign apprentices studying at Aichi in, and you see their capacity and you learn more about that garden, Tanaka seems to be doing it from a place of just general love and passion for bonsai. He's, yeah, he's a grandfather's trees, his father's trees. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he has the uh, financial means to uh, play his own game. And, you know, they, yeah, it's, it's a family. It's a, it's a straight up family. It's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Completely different. Yeah. That's such a different vibe than, than my experience of apprenticeship with Mr. Kimura. And uh, not to say one's better or worse, it's just cool. It's just cool that there's different models, different ways, uh, different experiences, different skill sets, different applications. It, it, all of this adds to the richness of the stew, you yeah. know, the, the color wheel of bonsai. And without it, it would be such a homogenized, sterilized, and creatively pasteurized practice, yeah. you know, uh, because I look at, I do look at the the methodology by which the angle of the branches, the handling of the pads, the styling of the foyer mass, yeah. and you can tell uh, an Aichian tree yeah. by the way that it is styled, and you can tell a Kimura tree, and you can tell a Kobayashi tree, and you can tell a Suzuki tree by the way that they are styled, um, and so the pr the preferences of aesthetics. I think it I think everybody I think it's necessary as bonsai observers and appreciators to buffer our immediate response to whether we like the aesthetic or not and consider all of the factors that go into that. You know, and I think in terms of what you're talking about as this neo traditional bonsai uh, approach might not might not be considering all of that. They might there is a notion in i think the neo-traditional approach to think that there is a right way right, right? and that, and that is dangerous that's dangerous um but as we as we evolve as the knowledge and skill sets expand and awareness increases like you're saying listen there's some solid core horticultural applications in, in nursery industry commonly practiced outside of bonsai and bonsai is supposed to be a to some degree a pinnacle of horticultural pursuit based on the fact that we're really manipulating a system that the that that all other horticultural endeavors really don't which is the size of the container okay. to actually root root bind and stunt the tree uh and and so inside of that it does really mean investing and mastering these fundamental core principles as well grafting it's a big one it's a big one we were air layering this past weekend here on some uh trees in the landscape that uh, that I'm pruning, trying to prune the trees in the landscape, although they contribute to my landscape, which makes it a little bit tougher, pruning them and taking advantage of the growth rate of a full-size tree to make fantastic movement, heal wounds, and then air layer off shoheen material. I think this is like, uh, I've never seen anybody do it to the degree that I think we're trying to pursue it, and it's going to be interesting to see if it works. But I, I throw that out there because I just think it's an untapped potential. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, it's, I kind of, uh, I don't remember which video I, it, it may have been propagation, but I did kind of try to plead to people that it's like, you know, if this is your dream and this is what you, you, you want your whole life to be about, you know, don't wait until you, you get technically down the road or something like that to start 
just taking cuttings or air layers and learning how to just grow material and understanding just the functionality of it, you know, while you're improving that game and then you're learning the technical aspect, like you'll come out of it a lot faster, but there's more work in it, but, you know, growing it out or like you're saying, you know, air layering the trees in your yard or doing whatever you need to like produce your own material just to get the experience of doing it. I mean, oh, there's just so many like missed opportunities when it comes to collected material and maybe not discarding that branch with that dead wood, but air layering it off and actually creating a very awesome shoheen or mommy tree, mommy tree with, with dead wood on it. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we're wasting a lot of those resources. Like it happens with buttonwoods, like something gets sawed off and carved and it's like, you can just literally put that in water and save it and then have like a super amazing shoheen or something like that out of material that was otherwise just going in the garbage or going yep. in the burn pile. Yep. Yep. And this again, I think speaks to opportunities that y- that you have that are unique to Florida, which is to say that sawed off piece can go into water. You have the temperatures both day and night to be able to get something like that to root. And that's that's a that's a special thing. That's a special thing. Yeah. We I you know I hope on my soapboxes uh, that some people will start adopting that same type of thought just to, I don't know, being a Florida native, it's, it's also that is just saving things, you know, you know, like buttonwoods, pieces of them, you know, because even if that piece comes off, it's still off a 400 year old tree. But yeah, being able to save those things that you couldn't otherwise in another climate. We should be doing more of it statewide. We should be mm-hmm. doing more of it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a cultural shift to a degree. Uh, and also a, an awareness, a knowledge, a knowledge of that opportunity that maybe people don't necessarily have. Do you, have you ever tried to, or do you have it in your mind to see all of the nurseries that exist in Florida? Oh, I already have. Yeah. 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 I, I think I've, I've probably gone through uh, at least a third to half of all the ones in the United States too. I make it a personal mission. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Especially if they're bonsai related, but there's a lot of uh, native nurseries in Florida that are wholesale only that uh, we literally use Google maps to find them uh, from the air. And then we'll drive to them and figure out where they are because they're not listed anywhere because they're old family operations. But we find a lot of things like non bonsai nursery stuff that way. So between the two, yeah, I've gone to a great deal of them. I, I, I kick myself because the number of nurseries is, is, is shrinking. It's yeah. not expanding. And, and that's really sad because the nursery industry, the green industry in general, is a, really, is a really heavily impacted industry from all of the, whether you talk about the, the recession in 2008, 2010, yeah. or the pandemic and, and sort of the challenges that come with that of being, being in such a, a, a volatile industry, but the, the amount of material that could be utilized as bonsai through the acts of air layering, grafting, uh, propagation, you know, or just, just solid reduction and, and technique to make a root system and a canopy that's capable of being a proportionally fantastic bonsai 
it's expansive, the amount of opportunity out there in the nursery industry itself. Somebody could make a career. As a bone type professional, you could make a career. I mean, the, fa- the, the emphasis on Yamadori, I respect, but there is an entirely different career to be made of just nursery material. Just nursery yeah. material as bone size subject. I, a professional could make a great living. Yeah, and we don't uh, we don't import anything. So literally mm-hmm. everything there is produced there, unless we get like a, a sapling of like some native variety, like say cypress, to go grow out for a forest composition or something like that. But sure. uh, yeah, it's that is the challenge, and is when you're not when you're self generating a hundred percent of your material generally. Uh, yeah, it's uh, but anybody could do that in Florida you know, realistically, um, you could do it a lot better with overhead, but, um, the reason we can do it is we don't ship and we don't sell online. So our entire survival is the community around us, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in bonsai almost impossible to live off of. You know, if you're just talking about people driving to your nursery, signing up for your classes, it's, uh, it's a hell of a lot of work to do that and produce 100% of the material. Can't but even imagine. In Florida, you can get it done. You you mm-hmm. absolutely can get it done. That's awesome. That is that is very very cool. Very very cool. I'm I'm always inspired when we talk. Oh, you know what we needed to get back to the the bald cypress versus the pond yeah. cypress discussion. Can yeah. we do this? Can we do For this? Sure. Talk to me about that. Educate me. So, uh, yeah, I even like uh, printed the thing off so I could remember certain dates, but. I, I've been studying the differences between pond and um, bald. The earliest papers go back to like, you know, the early, like 1805, you know, where people started actually studying what is the purpose of um, the uh, knees? What is, what is the difference in the foliage? Is there a difference in the foliage? You know, is there truly a difference between the two species? Like, is there two species? Like, yeah. When I was in school, my professor's like, give it 10 years. They'll, they'll just get rid of pond cypress because it's, it's dumb. Like that was literally what she said. It's, it's dumb. There's, there's just one and it's the conditions exerted on it that causes it to change, Mm. you know? And even in Florida, like you can go down the river and you can see both foliages on the tree at the same time. Yeah. Uh, The problem is, is they generally will always emerge more on the pond cypress side of, you know, um, ascendants meaning they kind of overlap and they climb up the branch um as far as like taxonium decitum versus ascendance um but however when they mature and they harden off that's when they'll fully express whether they're bald cypress or not so that's really when you know the difference is when the foliage hardens off as far as which one that it is um because because bald cypress does fully harden off and pond cypress does not or because when they harden off there is a change of the leaf shape in a definitive direction. The change in a definitive direction where it may start off looking like pond and then as it matures and hardens off, then the leaves basically fully fan out rather than look kind of uh, kind of dainty and... Um, Tubular almost. Yeah, yeah. Basically limp versus, you know, a bald cypress that wants to kind of elevate itself a little bit more horizontally. Huh. So they both seed and inverted flowers you know when it comes to the knees um you know they say pond is more rounded uh in nature and bald is more pointy um you know historically i think this was uh 1850s or something is when they tried to do 
uh, like a study to see if the knees for air, for aeration, uh, whether they were basically like nutrient webs as in the water went by and it, it collected nutrients, um, whether it was purely uh, for stability um, or whether it was uh, nutritional storage or nutritional uptake. And as far as like the aeration, as far as are, are the knees present for um, like any sort of snorkel property, like a, what does it call a pneumatophore or lintus cell present? It's not there. Uh, they would seal them off in airtight containers and pack it with, uh, I think it's beeswax and uh, paraffin. Uh, and it actually found out that they generated less oxygen than most normal plants. So there was nothing, there was no transfer of gases through the root system. So it definitely wasn't through aeration. Um, they did iodine cutting uh, to determine whether it was a um, uh, nutritional uptake or storage center. And it did find to have slightly higher nutrition storage capacities than say uh, the upper part of the trunk. Um, but most commonly it comes down to just foundational support. And almost every research paper almost comes to the conclusion that it's like, we know it's not aeration, um, but there's still a debate. But more often than not, it's probably just a prehistoric adaptation that is no longer needed for the tree, but has just been become a part of the tree as far as how it mutated. Uh, because as far as knees, they'll be in like 20 feet of water here in Florida. There's not a knee on it. So it's still breathing just fine. It's still ancient. Uh, the one in the article, uh, you know, the uh, Florida regional study, the the twin trunk, we call it twisted sister. That thing is right. like, like 20 feet of water. There's not a knee on it. Uh, but one's along the shoreline um, where it's maybe half in, half out, or it's in a hydro period where it dries out and the mud is softer. You can find more roots in that regard. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't always have a knee that comes up and then a root goes straight down from there. A lot of times it is a bar and the knees just rise from it. So it just seems more like an adaptation than anything. And the foliage does seem to have that as well. I wonder with collecting, uh, it's like bald cypress never lost a single one. They're so easy to collect and to put into an organic soil base that's typically on an acidic level. Uh, They're collected in an alkalinic environment. However, the tannins and the leaf litter and stuff in the low oxygen. Yeah. They can survive with basically a highly acidic upper level of soil. Um, so yeah, a pond cypress typically is more in drought stricken areas. They may not get as large or as old. Um, but they also primarily occur in places with the most highly acidic soil or right up on the limestone where they're growing in an alkaline base with a, a soil on top that would basically eat the rust off your bumper. It's so acidic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like if you collect a pond cypress in that environment of high alkalinity and you put it into a highly acidic soil, if this were hydroponics, that would be almost instant death. Mm-hmm. So is the lower collection rate of pond cypress is related to that versus survival? You know, uh, it's a lot to think about there as far as, if there are two species, pond cypress are predominantly more full crowns, more almost Christmas tree in nature. Does that mean we're styling ponds to look like balds? Mm-hmm. You know. So Cypress are you making? Yeah, but are you making the case that that pond cypress and bald cypress are the same tree 
with foyer characteristics indicative of these environmental situations, or are you still saying there's an ascendance and a disticum that they're separate species? No, I, I have to be almost with my 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 teacher in school on. I really think it's more environmental conditions present okay. uh, because you know the the fact that they can change foliage uh, within a single season, uh, or maybe uh, say it goes into a hydro period where it's predominantly wet. Um, where some, maybe it needs a wider leaf to transpire more because it's the conditions that it's in rather than a pond uh, can survive droughts that a bald cypress necessarily can't. Well, it doesn't need as much of a transpiration uh, surface ratio. So, you know, what I'm curious about is can I take a pond cypress or a bald cypress and introduce it to the opposite environment? Can I create the foliage? Can I predict what it's going to do based on changing the soil conditions? That's what I really want to find out. That's mm. my that's my kind of five year goal is to see if I can push foliage one way or another by altering the conditions. Because some people can grow knees successfully. I've seen it uh, here in Florida where they keep it in a very saturated, almost like a fully containerized pond, where the cypress trees will go roots in a in soil or i'm sorry in water that is more aerated like a fish tank and in stagnant water mm -hmm. so if you can produce those conditions with the knees i don't know i'm i can't say definitively that i couldn't do it with the leaves so that's kind of where i want to do in the next five years is can i change the way the foliage is based on the conditions present you know it's like maybe nobody in the world gives a crap but it is bothers me enough because in my mind, this could be the difference of collecting a tree and it dying or living as yep. far as what are you taking out of putting it into? You know, if there's a difference in the environmental impacts there, what is bonsai, but literally climate change like sped up, yep. you know? So, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'd, I'd be curious. No one that I know of has tried it uh, or maybe observed it to that kind of uh, nerdy level, but uh Hey man, I got nothing but time, so I'm gonna try it. Yeah, yeah, you got nothing but time. Two thousand trees, you know, of classes. I mean, you got a, a beautiful daughter. Well, that can just uh, go there and grow, though. Making some, making some fantastic artistic, you know, woodwork and frames. I was gonna um, say, uh, Tanaka has a frame in Japan. Does he? Yeah, that was Seth's. Uh, I love you. Please accept me. Gift to his. Uh, yeah. Mentor. All about the gift. That's a badass gift. That's a badass gift. Gift for you. Yeah, we, one of your frames uh, flew the coop the other other day. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, yep. So the, it begins. It's just a matter of time. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, this is we're just now crawling out of you know continuous uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I everything is you know World Boneside Day. We would normally expect a couple hundred people like. Uh, you know, for like a, just a one day event, people coming from across the state. Uh, but, you know, just after COVID, before the restrictions are fully lifted, we still were like somewhere in like the 130 range yeah. uh, for people that came. So it was like, okay, okay. People are, people are ready to do this. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, everybody's well, just getting warmed up. The engines our, are, you know, start your engine. Our car art across the board is going to get better. So. Yep. Good. That's exciting, man. I could talk to you all night. I have so many more questions. I'm glad we finally got to tackle the bald cypress discussion because we actually set out to do that last time. 
Yeah. Well, you know, when I was looking at the senator that burnt down from the girl that uh, was having a meth party, uh, you know, I looked it up and I'm like, who nominated this champion tree? And it said Sean Gallagher. I'm like, I can't believe he never, that was my Boston forestry. That's who drove me out to Colorado and everything. He never told me he's the one that nominated that tree. And that was Forster uh, for that County. So, uh, yeah. Uh, wait, that what do you, was you how do you nominate? He nominated a tree to be the grand champion. So, you know, you have like a U.S. registry of champion trees, but Florida has so many damn champion trees. Some counties have over 100. I think Miami-Dade's like 109 champion trees. Um, so Florida has its own registry. So we literally have like a almost an inch thick book of where they are and the information of like every damn champion tree in the state. There's so many. <coughs> And it lists the national and the state champions, like full locations and everything. Some things are private. You can't get to, but a lot of those trees that we, uh, that Josh and I went to, those were literally the registered champions in Florida, like Bad the largest ones of their species. Badass. Um, yeah. Wow. Those are some old, old trees. Give me the name of the, the tree that has the sinuous roots again. Copac. Yeah. Copac. Copac. All right. Capac. 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 All right. Yeah. Sorry. See, I'll screw you up. I'll get you all confused. <laughs> I'll, text, I'll text it to you. Capac. I, I I need to see this. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, and I'm excited to see more of Josh's footage. I was just looking over his shoulder today. Um and, and I was like, oh, this is good. <laughs> this is so good. Well, uh, it's it's only gonna get better because it's like, you know, when one teaches to learn. So having that experience of being on, you know, film and stuff like that, it was easy to talk to the camera, but I've never had to stop when leaves were blowing by because of the noise. So getting used or adapting to that and coming right back to where you left off, like those are yes. the things I'll get more proficient at. I'm sure no one will notice because he's a master editor, but uh, yeah, it's like when leaves would come by, he would be like, whoop, whoop, and I'm like, oh shit, what was I saying? Yeah. Oh. Where, where was I? Right. That's the, that's tough. That's a yeah. skill set. That's a skill set to be, to be aware of the environment peripherally while you're staring at that camera and maintaining your stream of thought and then something stops and you pick right up there. That's a, that is a practiced skill. Yeah. Well, plus, you know, actively thinking about not being contradictive or, you know, not confusing someone, you know, because it's not live content. So they're not asking you, but mm -hmm. yeah, just, you know, making sure that, you know, somebody goes away with confidence and not like more confused, you know? So when you get those interruptions like that, it's like, okay, okay. Wh where, where was I again? Uh, but yeah. I think overall, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very stoked. Very good. Very, I'm glad that Dave went on camera. I didn't think that was going to happen. Uh, but I, I kind of wanted him to tell the story of the nursery. Cause I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm next generation. So, yeah. I, you know, he's not an old decrepit man. So I felt like, I mean, you should tell your story, man. <laughs> So, yeah, 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 good. Oh, so rich, so rich. Such a pleasure, man. I'm I'm super excited. And again, thank you. Oh, yeah. Thanks for share, sharing the wealth. Thanks for spreading the goodness. And uh, it's super great to have you on Mariah Life. We're 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 this is the beginning of something good. I can already oh, tell. I know. Yeah, I'm 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 excited. You know, I like the idea of being able to follow up with the trees to actually mm -hmm. show people full on progression. I think that is the most valuable thing uh but the probably the least utilized in any of the online content that you usually see 
is yeah. you don't see progression of stuff. So it's like, you don't go to a tattoo parlor and be like, you look trustworthy. No, you look at their portfolio. So it's like, if you can't see these things happen, you know, it does people give them the hesitation and that credibility to, to feel like they can do it. So I'm stoked yeah. that that's, that's kind of the approach to it. I think it's going to be great. It's, 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 it was the weakness of uh, a published book. You know, you can't fix, you can't right your wrongs and you can't uh, continue to show the fruits of the technique. It's what empowers, I think, as a judgment base for the student as a consumer of bonsai knowledge, empowers them to make the decision of whose approach they want to follow. You know, seeing that process over time and the product of the technique, it's just a, it's a really empowering manner and method to go about the bone type process, which yeah. is a time, time, time tested art form. You know, it's a time is that is a big part of it. And plus, you know, if you're doing this professionally, like you need that, you know, it's, it's like you were telling me one time, like, well, I'm not the only person who studied under Khmer, but where's everybody else? Like, typically, if you don't have a garden to be like, okay, this is, I said this, this is what's happening, you know? So yeah, video content, you just kind of have to trust them. So not having that full breadth of, you know, that full scope of progress, man, kudos to you for providing that outlet for people. Cause there's too many questions, you know, yeah. yeah. and sometimes seeing it resolves a lot of those questions um, that, you know, most questions just lead to another, but the, the visual perspective is important. So that's great. Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, David, I'm cutting out, man. Um, I certainly enjoyed sitting down and talking with you and, uh, and I look forward to, to digging in, man. I have, a, I have a lot to learn from you and, um, and, uh, it's exciting. It's really exciting. So thank you. I'm ready to get back out there. So yeah, yeah. good stuff. All right, brother. Well, we'll talk right, to man. you on the flip side. Yeah. Right. Good night.